Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, as the New King James says. The end of the world, the King James says. The King James also says, Go into all the world and teach rather than make disciples, but the idea is to make disciples. Go into all the world, he said to the apostles, and disciple, disciple individuals. And incidentally, in that text, and it's not the purpose of this lesson to explore that in detail, but to mention that he tells us what is involved in making disciples to some extent. The culminating act of discipleship is baptism. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. How so, Lord? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when you couple Matthew's account of that great commission, as we call it, with Mark's account in Mark 16, 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Go disciple or make disciples of all the nations. How so? Baptizing them. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is discipled, culminating in being baptized, will be saved. How much clearer and more consistent could it be? And yet, as we pointed out in class in Ron's comment this morning, there are those, tragically, in the denominational world who will advocate the preaching of Christ and love and mercy and grace and and so many other things, and yet when it comes to the subject of baptism, they take a firm defensive stand and say, don't tell me or try to tell me that water has anything to do with my salvation. It has everything to do with your salvation, not by itself and in and of itself, But just as we've pointed out from the Great Commission and from the examples that are seen in Scripture, every single one of them culminates with water. The washing of regeneration, Titus 3.5, as we looked at it this morning in Bible class. The washing of regeneration, that's baptism. And it is not the water that saves, but until we submit lovingly and obediently to that barrel in water, the blood cannot reach us, and it is the blood that must save us. And so the blood is applied when we lovingly and obediently submit to that barrel in water. And when we do, having believed and repented and confessed sweetly the name of Jesus and submitted to that barrel, we rise to walk in newness of life, added to the kingdom, the church, we have been discipled. We have been discipled. And this morning, I'd like for us to think for a few minutes together about discipleship, and specifically looking at a passage in Luke's account of the gospel, what I would call the dictates of discipleship. Look with me at those verses, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed? 
or lost. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. I believe those verses contain four dictates of discipleship. Those things that are absolutely essential to our being truly called and considered to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. Here they are in preview. Desire, denial, diligence, and declaration. All of those dictates are found in the verses we have just noticed together. Discipleship. The dictates of discipleship begin with desire. Isn't that what Jesus says? If anyone desires to come after me. If anyone desires to come after me. That is, if anyone desires to become my disciple. That's the first dictate. You must desire it. Why is it that for the most part, the majority of those alive today have absolutely no interest in discipleship? No interest at all, because they have no desire to follow Jesus. Well, they have desires. They have desires. In fact, desire leads us to do all sorts of things, either good or bad. Desire is prevalent in everyone at some point in time, to some degree or another, is it not? I do certain things because I have a desire to do those things. But the key is, what is the object of my desire? You remember Eve, when she succumbed to the temptation of Satan? She saw that the tree was what? Desired to make one wise. That was part of the appeal. She had a desire that she sought to fulfill being deceived by Satan. But her desire had as its object that which she should never have desired to obtain. She should have been more than satisfied with what God had blessed her with and Adam, her husband, with. But she saw it as a tree that was to be desired, but for the wrong reason, to make one wise. Jesus, in the very text that we have just read, talks about desire in the wrong way for whoever desires to save his life. That's desire. But that's desire that is directed toward worldly things. Remember in 1 Timothy 3 what Paul writes there, if any man desires the office of a bishop, that's desire properly directed toward a good thing. But it is often said, and I think rightfully so, that it's the first qualification to become an elder is that one has to have that, that desire. If anyone desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Oh yes, desire can be good, desire can be evil, but desire is present with all of us in some way to some degree. And so Jesus says that's the first dictate of discipleship. If you're going to become my disciple, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to desire to be my disciple. Now, a great deal could be said 
In fact, we could finish this lesson with just this point and stay right here, couldn't we, about what God has done to produce within us the proper desire to become the disciple of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. What has God done? Well, it's summarized in John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's it. That's everything you need to know in terms of producing, if you understand and appreciate to the fullest extent, the golden text of the Bible as it is called, John 3.16. That's all that you would need to have produced within your heart, the desire to become a follower, a disciple of the one who gave so much for you and who gave so much for me who sacrificed so much. And time and again we are reminded in Scripture of that love, that boundless, matchless love, that wonderful grace, that grace in action, God's mercy, God's love. All of that is set before us in beautiful and repeated terms from Old Testament to New to produce within our hearts the desire to become His disciples. Not out of dread and terror, not out of recognition of duty, not out of of fear primarily, though certainly hell is a reality, and Jesus makes hell an unnecessary reality for us if we'll desire to follow him and then complete that desire. But it should be that matchless, boundless love, the love of Christ that should compel us, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ compels us Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ should compel us. And that leads to the second dictate of discipleship, really, from 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, that we should live no longer for what? For ourselves. What's the second dictate of discipleship in this text? Denial. You see, desire properly, properly grounded desire will set us up beautifully for denial. For denial. Another of the dictates of discipleship. We've mentioned before that it is not a question of becoming a disciple of the Lord by diminishing oneself. That is not sufficient. Jesus did not say one must diminish himself to be my disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny, not diminish, let him deny himself. Let him, first of all, deny that he has any hope of salvation other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. That he cannot do it himself. That he can do nothing in and of himself to bring about the desired result, that is, eternal salvation. That he or she is totally dependent upon the Lord. Deny any possibility that you can save yourself and completely rely upon the Lord. Deny and rely totally upon Jesus. And so it's not a question of giving up part of this worldly attitude or worldly desire. It's a question of denying self, denying self to follow him. We've looked at passages in this same gospel account of Luke a little bit later on where Jesus reinforces this teaching 
so clearly in Luke 14, 26. You remember that text? In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Reinforcement of what we're looking at in Luke chapter 9. He cannot be my disciple unless he loves less. That's the meaning of hate here. His father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. A few verses later in that same 14th chapter, Jesus says, So likewise, verse 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. And coming back to the text in Luke chapter 9, he elaborates on this as he moves further to another of the dictates. Denying oneself, denying oneself involves not hanging on to any part of the world in order to try to save one's life. In other words, denial, if you look down at the elaboration of it in verse 24, we'll come back to the latter part of verse 23 for the third dictate in a moment. But in verse 24, he says, forever who, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. In other words, if he does not complete the denial process and clings and clings to too much of this world by seeking to save his life in so doing, then he'll actually lose it. He'll actually lose it. By seeking to save, you will lose. By being willing to lose, you will save. That's the paradox or the irony involved here. That's what he says. There's so much you're going to have to be willing to lose in order to save that which is most important. If you're unwilling to lose that which is least important, then you're going to lose ultimately that which is most important. That's the choice. That's what denial involves. And once we have been willing to make that kind of denial, once we have been willing to make that kind of commitment that Paul, for example, writes about in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's denial. That is laying it all on the altar of sacrifice, as it were. Present your bodies once and for all is the meaning there. It's in a tense that indicates a once and for all action. Present, present. Not keep on presenting, but make that commitment at the point of discipleship, at the point of being discipled, lay it all on the line. And say, I am denying self, I am presenting my body fully and wholly and completely as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which he adds is your reasonable service. That's the very same thought that Jesus is expressing here in Luke chapter 9. Denial. There's no way to overly stress the importance of what the New Testament clearly teaches about the extent to which we are to commit to the Lord. It is to be a denial if we're to be a disciple. And then once we've understood and accomplished that denial, there's a third dictate here that's seen in the latter part of verse 23. 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's diligence. That's diligence. If anyone desires to come after me, that's desire. Let him deny himself, that's denial, and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's diligence. Taking up one's cross, enduring whatever comes because you have presented your body as that living sacrifice, you have denied self, you've laid it all on the line, and whatever comes, you are going to be diligent in taking up your cross day in and day out. Diligence. What does it mean to be diligent? It means to persevere. It means to be absolutely determined that you're going to finish what you have begun. There's a vast difference between diligence and delinquence, isn't there? And how tragic it is that so many who we do not doubt desired to be a follower of the Lord We cannot question the fact that at one time they were willing to deny themselves. But when it came to remaining diligent, they have rather become delinquent. And what a tragedy above all tragedies that is. Remember Peter's words, better never to have known than having once been diligent to become delinquent. Better never to have known the way of truth. And having known it, to turn your back upon the holy commandment once delivered. Like the dog turning to its own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. That is a description graphically of one who rather than remaining diligent, became delinquent. And there are those among us at this very moment in time in that tragic state. Delinquent, no longer diligent, but in some form, to some degree, delinquent. It's a sobering and tragic reality that every member of the Lord's body who is diligent must be aware of, must address, must pray about, must do all that he or she can change that situation in the lives of those who are no longer diligent but who have become delinquent because they are no longer faithful disciples of the Lord. Think of a passage in 2 Timothy 2.15 where Paul wrote to Timothy, give diligence to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent. Keep on keeping on so that ultimately you what? Present yourself approved to God. When is that presentation to take place? At the judgment. So it takes diligence throughout life to be able to be presented to God in Christ in an approved state. A workman that does not need to be what? Ashamed. And then he adds, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word ashamed leads to our fourth and final dictate of discipleship. And that is declaration. Read with me again verse 26 of Luke chapter 9. For whoever is ashamed of me. 
Paul said, Timothy, give diligence to present yourself approved to God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Here the Lord says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, which incidentally says what? To be ashamed of his word is to be ashamed of him. To be ashamed of him is to be ashamed of his words. Because that's what we have of him today. We don't have him in person, but we have him in the word. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. That says that declaration is an absolutely crucial dictate of discipleship. I've got to declare my discipleship. I cannot be ashamed to declare that I am a disciple. It's very similar, too, I think, to what the Lord said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me, whoever is ashamed of me, very similar thought. And the confession in Matthew 10, 32 and 33 is not simply the confession we make with our lips prior to being buried in baptism, although certainly that would be involved, but it's a confession that we continue to make by our lives and by lips as we have the opportunity. It is a declaration of discipleship that we are to continually make. And we are to not be ashamed of making that declaration. And we're to do it by our example, indeed. But we're also to do it by the doctrine that we're willing to share and to impart to others. The doctrine of Christ that we're not ashamed of. That we're not ashamed of with those who are going astray or who have gone astray from among us. A doctrine we're not ashamed of with those who've never been a part of us because they haven't obeyed the gospel. A doctrine that we're not ashamed of with anyone at any time in any way. One that we are willing to declare, the word that is, on every occasion that presents itself. Being wise as serpents, harmless as doves, Matthew ten sixteen, And understanding that we need to pick our opportunities carefully and that we need to use those opportunities carefully and that we need to choose our words carefully so as to hopefully attract and not to repel those whom we are trying to reach. But there's a vast difference in being careful about how we approach someone and being ashamed to approach them, period. And shying away from those opportunities. We not only need not shy away, but we need to look for the opportunities and be a soul-conscious group of individuals as God's disciples, as Christ's disciples, aware of lost souls around us and never ashamed to declare our discipleship. Luke 9, 23 through 26, I believe, contains four very crucial dictates. They are dictates, therefore they're absolutely essential. If they're dictates, aren't they? Desire, denial, diligence, perseverance to the end, 
and declaration. Being willing always to declare our discipleship to the world. Back to Matthew 28. Go therefore, verse 19, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are you a disciple? Have you been discipled? That's what Jesus commissioned the apostles and thus Christians for all time to do. Go into all the world and disciple all nations. That is, every individual in every nation is to be a disciple that is given the opportunity to become a disciple. Have you become a disciple? By a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent, to confess, and then to be baptized for the remission of sins, realizing that as you do, you rise as a new creature and that because of your desire to be that new creature and having become that new creature out of love and gratitude for what God has done for you, you are more than willing to deny yourself and to be diligent to present yourself ultimately to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed and that you will declare your discipleship at every opportunity and by the life that you lead, for the Lord as well. Will you be diligent unto death? Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Be diligent unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. And You can be presented to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, having rightly divided the word of truth and having rightly declared that word of truth by your discipleship. If you're not a disciple, we plead with you to become one this very hour. There may not be another opportunity. And if you have once known the joy of denial of self and embracing of the Savior, but you know that the world has crept back in and that you are no longer diligent as you once were, and that diligence or lack of diligence is known in a way that would compel you to repent publicly to restore your influence, your example, and your precious soul. We plead with you to come publicly and confess that wrong. Privately, sin should be taken care of between you and God. But if you know this morning that rather than diligent, you are delinquent, come home as we stand to sing to encourage.